Now, quick question. I'm sure that all of you men would conclude that prayer should be a priority in a pastor's life. Do you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. Um, and would you also agree that sometimes prayer can be a struggle? Hey, it can be. Um, I remember once, in, actually in my class, the students have to write a paper at the end of the term, and one asked if he could do some research for me because I kept mentioning it in class. And what he did, it was about three years ago, he actually did research at the Shepherds Conference. He created a survey, and he went around campus uh, with this survey asking men about their prayer life, the consistency of it, the depth of it, how much time does one spend in it, what are some of the resources that they use, how they taught on it. And the stats came back, and here men like yourselves, uh, Bible-believing men, have a strong conviction about the Word of God, have a higher view of God. They have a sense of our purpose in life to be here as witnesses for the Lord Jesus Christ. And then when that information came back, do you think it was there was a marketable difference between the men on this campus and what we might see sometimes in the church? What do you think? Not really. There wasn't this great difference that we're saying here are men that are called to the ministry, many whether you be called in the sense of vocationally as a pastor full-time or called in the sense uh, that you just have a strong leadership role in the church, uh, there wasn't the great of a difference that we would hope for. And then so the question is, is pretty, or the statement is pretty obvious then, um, if the shepherds don't have a depth of prayer life, then one, what can one expect from the sheep? How do we pass on something that we're not engaged in in a consistent, dynamic way ourselves. Uh, prayer can be difficult, but nonetheless, that's why even Jesus Christ told a parable. It tells us in uh, Luke 18.1, and it says, having told them a parable, why men ought to always pray and not lose, what does it say? Lose heart. Because he understood that you can pray and one can't, the heart can become indifferent at times, or wearied, or discouraged. He says, make sure that you keep knocking. Be like that widow. Keep asking. Be like that widow. Don't give up. So men can give up. But we need to be men who can be men of prayer. As a leader, deacon, Sunday school teacher, the man for your, um, your family, and most definitely a pastor. Because if we pause for a moment and think about, then what is a pastor? A pastor is someone that's a shepherd, that's a protector. He's watching over the souls of men and women. And we also agree that that shepherd will give an account. We know that we'll give an account for our teaching. James makes that perfectly clear. Let, let not many of you become a teacher knowing that you will incur what? What does it say? A stricter judgment. But in our prayer life, uh, we cannot let ourselves off the hook, if you will. We can't. Just some texts for us to consider. Uh, familiar ones, right? Um, Acts 6.4, what do we learn about the early church? Uh, the leaders of the church make a decision. There must be deacons because we cannot be involved in certain things. And then there must be a ministry, a twofold ministry, the twofold ministry prayer. And what's the other part? The word. Now, what is it that we really, really get right? The word. But when it comes to prayer, it was the prayer, it was prayer and the word, prayer and the word. And we tend to say the word, and if we can pray, the word most definitely, and when we have the opportunity to pray. That was not the formula in the early church. It was prayer 
and the word. 1 Samuel 12 and 23, the prophet makes a statement and he says this, how can I sin against the Lord, he says, by not praying for you? And he says, but I will, and he says, I will teach you and instruct you in, in, in the things of the Lord. Notice what he says. It is a sin against the Lord by not praying for you. That's a weighty statement, isn't it? It's not my statement. Consider the words of the prophet. And then 2 Timothy 2.24, what does it tell us? We think in a military uh, mindset that we have all been enlisted. Paul says to uh, Timothy that no soldier in active service does what? Entangles themselves in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him. You are all enlisted. Whether you be a full-time pastor, you've been enlisted. Whether you be a lay leader, you have been enlisted. We're all enlisted as believers when we are chosen by the grace of God. Amen? And now we must report for duty. Do you agree with that? So how do we please our commander-in-chief, if you will? And then if you would consider Psalm 27 and 4, uh, this is from the standpoint of what is our priority as people who are lovers of God Psalm 27, 4, the psalmist cries out, and he says, this is the one thing that he wants in life. And what's the one thing that he wants? He wants to be in the house of the Lord so he might behold the beauty of God and to meditate in his temple. So to behold God, and how do we behold God? You behold God, yes, most definitely through his word. You also behold God through prayer, communion with the living God. Uh, some terms, missing movement, AWOL, and desertion. So according to the military uniform code, that uh, there are three ways that we can look at these terms, missing movement. Um, we had an appointment. We didn't make it. We should have been on board. We didn't make it. AWOL, simply the sense of being away without leave. You've taken leave, but you should have been there in, in cases for an important duty. And, of course, desertion is obvious, is it not? You think about a deserter, someone that's decided the fight is too much for me, and they desert. Now, the difference between AWOL and desertion is this. The deserter um, has no intention of returning. The person that's AWOL, perhaps there is some intention to, to return. Maybe in that moment the battle is too fierce, uh, they leave, or maybe they decide, It's not a matter of being in a battle. There's something else that they deem to be more important, and they leave without being given that leave. But they do want to come back again. And what's interesting about a deserter, uh, if he is captured one minute after going AWOL, and it can be proven that he never had the intention to come back, he would then be considered a deserter. You had no intention to return again. Now, of course, in the midst of war, uh, if a person is proven to be a deserter, uh, they are open to the highest punishment possible, which is execution during a time of war. Now, fortunately, there's only been one person uh, since the Civil War who has been executed as a deserter. It was actually in 1945, um, Private Edik Slovak. Now, there are many others who were deserters during World War II, but he was the only one that was executed for it. Now, um, I have no um, sense that any of you men are deserters because I believe a person that's a deserter can't be a Christian. There's no way that you can say, I'm leaving never to return again. 
And if we focus on prayer, a believer cannot say, I'm leaving never to pray again. But we might be AWOL. We're away because we deem something else to be more important. Oh, does that sound familiar? You look at your day and you say, well, I could report for prayer, but how, how much you fill in that blank? Someone tell me. I'll interact with you for a moment. How much you fill in that blank? Yes. That's right. I've, I've got to get over here. I've got to get another book. There's, there's one more email that I have to return, right? I have to counsel that person, absolutely. I have to finish the sermon. As, after all, you know, Acts 6-4, the second part of it says the word. Oh, what about that first part? Yeah, exactly. What else? I don't have the time. More You have deemed more important to do. Yeah. Well, in the mind of Luther, yes, right here, this brother. The agenda is long. <laughs> uh, who's ever been in a meeting with a long agenda? Oh, my word. How about one that was too long? Yeah, absolutely. Oh, check Facebook and get social media. What's happening? Did anyone like my, my eloquent um, little post that I put out there, right? How many likes do I have? So all of a sudden, what we do is we revert back to being a teenager to see who likes us right now. I'm tired. Yes. The enemy, just the mind, you're under attack. You don't feel, quote, don't feel like it in that moment, which think about it, that's a ridiculous logic because now if I realize I'm under attack, what should you do? Talk to your commander in chief. Have you ever seen anyone in any, any war that decides we're under attack? Let's not call in any reinforcements. We're under attack. Well, you know, imagine that. Well, I know that there is another brigade that's out there, but let's not bother with it. You would never do that. The thing to do is pray. What is prayer? Phillips Brooks said it very succinctly. A prayer is a true wish sent Godward. A true wish sent Godward. Of course, there's many ways we can define prayer. Well, let's just think about it in that succinct way. And what Brooks meant by that could be a number of things. It could be adoring praise. God, you're great and glorious and majestic and mighty. And I spend some time recognizing you and who you are. It could be thanksgiving for who God is and what God is doing in your life and the life of others around you. I mean, it's confession. Lord, I confess my sin to you. I confess that at times I find myself too busy to spend time with you. It's petition that we're, we're interceding even for others. We petition for others, and then we intercede for others. Oh, it's just a humble prayer of surrender to the will of God. Yes, you, God, your will be done. We should all be involved in prayer. It is difficult, but notice this as well. Notice the words of Luther, and he said, that is prayer, the hardest work of all, a labor above all labors since he who prays must wage a mighty warfare against the doubt and murmuring excited by the faint-heartedness and unworthiness we feel within us. It's a battle. But Luther was also the one, as has been famously quoted, and I did trace down itself because I've heard the hours vary um, from quote to quote, when Luther would say he looked at his day and he saw how busy it was, and he would say, I must spend the first two hours in prayer. And I've heard someone say it was six hours, and uh, the fish gets bigger and bigger and bigger. 
Um, but from what I discovered, he did say one, at one point in time, I must commit to two hours in prayer because my day is so busy. But the natural says what? What does the natural say? My day is so busy, I must do what? Get busy. There's so much to be done. Instead of asking on the blessing of God, that God help me in the busyness of this day. There are times I look at my schedule, and I literally, that's one of the first things I start with looking at it, and I pray through it. And there was one time I looked at it, and I have it all color-coded. I'm doing this, and so I can at a glance know what I'm doing. And I looked at it, and that morning I was supposed to be out the door at 6 a.m. and get back home about 10 p.m., and I had two blocks of 20 minutes here and 30 minutes there. I actually took a screenshot of it, and I did post it and said, you know, please pray for me. I need help during this day. Uh, it's a hard labor, but nonetheless a necessary labor, is it not? I mean, all the things we do in life are hard, are they not? At least the things that are worthwhile. Is preaching hard? It is. It's hard work. Put in the effort. Is counseling difficult? Yes, to give yourself to people, to, to bring God's truth to bear in their lives. That's hard. At times, it's hard to deal with difficult people in the church. Or it's hard when something happens to dear people in your church and your heart goes out to them and it's hurting for them. But nonetheless, we must do it. And as Luther is saying, it's hard because there's this internal battle within, but we must fight through it. So let me give you eight considerations. Went through that quickly, eight considerations. Number one, leaders must pray because this is the place of communion with God. Psalm 16, the psalmist throughout talks about in the end of the psalm that in your presence is the fullness of joy. But throughout the psalm, he is consistently talking about crying out to God, being nourished by God in relation to God. So this is a starting point. You say, what should be a pastor, a minister, a leader's priority? It has to be prayer because this is a place where you commune with the living God. How many of you men are married? How many married men in there? All right, and you, and you can also keep your hands up because you're also happily married, are you not? Amen. Just say amen, a hearty amen. It's, a, it's being recorded. Your, your wife will be able to distinguish your voice, right? Then she'll say, wait a minute, I didn't hear you. What's going on here? And you know how women are. They can hear your voice, right? <laughs> right? Just like you can hear your own baby, your own child cry. It's like, oh, I hear my kid. Wait a minute, there are 15 kids in the nursery. No, that's my kid. So, okay, I, I gave you a great opportunity right there, brothers. Some brownie points, right? So, happily married, one thing that keeps you happily married, I hope, is communication, is it not? Imagine if you never talked to your wife. Where would your marriage be? There'd be no wife. Then there'd be no ministry. <laughs> Amen. So you have to nurture it. It's pretty senseless to say that I want to grow in communion with God. I want to know the living God. But you don't make time to talk to him. It's like going to your wife, I want to know you better. I want our marriage to grow. And she says, sure, I love it. Let's set up a time to talk and have some tea, whatever. But hold on. I'm not sure if I have time for that. It makes no sense. This is a place to commune with God. Number two, leaders must pray because it reflects Christian devotion. Look with me to Colossians chapter 4. Colossians 4. Notice what it says in Colossians 4 verse 2. 
devote yourselves to prayer. Then notice verse 12. What does it say in verse 12? Here it's illustrated in Epaphras in verse 12. It says Epaphras, who is one of our number, a bond slave of Jesus Christ, sends you his greetings always. What is he doing for them? Laboring earnestly for you in his prayers that you would stand perfect and fully assured in all the will of God. So leaders must pray because it reflects Christian devotion. This word devoted, a very strong word. And this is some examples of it in some key lexicons here. To persist, to associate closely, to serve personally, to be busy engaged in, um, keep on, to persist, to, to hold fast to, perpetually ready, steadfastness. And I love the last one is to persist obstinately. I mean, think about that. When we generally think about someone being obstinate, we mean, we mean it can be in a negative sense often. They're an obstinate person. It means they're unbending. They're unwavering. Now, for us as ministers of the gospel, it's good for us to be obstinate when it comes to gospel truth. Amen? Unbending, unwavering. I will not give way. But here, uh, the range of the word can mean this sense of to be obstinate in, to be persistent. And I think that's why the ESV, I think it says, continue steadfastly, is what it says. Be steadfast, unwavering in your prayer. So if we want to be examples to people, be a man that shows devotion to prayer. Now, here's some just translations of it throughout Acts 1.14, continually devoting themselves to prayer, 2.42, devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, breaking of the bread, and prayer, 46, they were continuing with one mind, that is, they're devoted to with one mind. Of course, we've already considered Acts 6 and 4, that great formula for church success, prayer and the word. Um, Acts 10, 7, interesting enough there, translated here, a personal assistant, because that person is devoted to that individual. What do you see around campus? You see some of the speakers with what? They have security near them, right? And that security guard, and we have someone else that's helping them. Can you get this for me? Their personal assistant, they're devoted to that person. And as well, Jesus said that there should be a boat that should stand ready for him because the crowds are pressing in upon him. That is, it should be absolutely committed to me so that I can use it. So prayer, you should be devoted in it. It's a reflection of Christian devotion. Be unbending in it. Be, as we said at the beginning, um, Luke 8 and 1, that we should not lose heart. Here's a third consideration. Leaders pray because it equips for spiritual warfare. Um, Ephesians, familiar text, right? What has Paul told us in verses 10 through 17? Make sure that you understand that you're engaged in spiritual warfare. Equip yourself in the armor of God. And then he says in verses 18 to 20, but as well, make sure that you are praying. And even notice verse um, 618, he says, with all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And notice the repeated use of it. Prayer, petition, pray. Then he says, petition. And also attached to it, he says, perseverance and petition. So this takes us back to the thought of Colossians, of devotion. 
Here, Paul says, perseverance. Perseverance. Make sure that you persevere in prayer. Consider the words of John Bunyan. He said that he understood spiritual warfare. Pray often, for prayer is a shield for the soul, a sacrifice to God, and a scourge to Satan. And even what Bunyan meant by this idea of being a scourge, it's not a word that we use often, but a scourge or whip or something that would cause suffering too. Now, we are not engaged in some personal interaction with Satan like some people might propose. We, we're not talking about binding Satan or cursing Satan or denouncing Satan personally, but where we're in God, engaged in personal prayer, we are seeking to do damage to his kingdom, are we not? You should be. We understand him to be the God of this world, but we serve the God of the universe, do we not? And we're involved in spiritual warfare. Understand that. Prayer is that. The people that are under your care, they're involved in spiritual warfare. Their their lives at times are often under attack. You're going to be under attack. It's spiritual war. Number four, leaders pray because it reflects humble surrender. Familiar text to us, right? 2 Corinthians 12. Uh, We know the episode, Paul is praying, there's this thorn in the flesh. And how many times does he seek the Lord? What is it? Three times. But then ultimately he was resolved to do what? This is God's sovereign will for my life. Therefore, I even rejoice in the circumstances of my life. Because then Paul concluded what? For when I am weak, then I am strong. So there has to be the sense of humble surrender when it comes to prayer. We see this uh, really demonstrated in the epitome, the prime example, the most glorious example in the person of Jesus Christ. He prayed, was he not? And it's interesting, Paul says three times he prayed. And how many times did Jesus pray? Three times he prayed. And he says, not thy will, that will be done. There's just going to be times in the life of your ministry, in your own personal life, when you battle with the Lord over something, and we have to surrender to the will of God, humble surrender to his will. This is important. Number five, leaders pray because it reflects heartfelt emotion. Heartfelt emotion. Now, the scripture tells us, beautifully stated, uh, Romans chapter 8, we we have this relationship with the living God because now there's life in the spirit as opposed to life in the flesh. The life in the flesh cannot discern God, cannot speak for God. But now life in the spirit, we are brought into this relationship. And now that we're brought into this relationship, we can cry out, Abba, Father. That's intimacy. That's heartfelt. You remember um, Hannah, 1 Samuel 1, 14 and 15, Eli the priest thought that she was drunk because she was praying but moving her, her lips, but there were no words. And he says, how long shall you linger over the wine? And she turns to him and says, what? She says, no, my Lord, I'm a woman oppressed in spirit. I've neither had wine nor strong drink. He says, but I have poured out my heart before the Lord. Now, brothers, I would propose to you that you should pour out your heart before the Lord, not only for your own life, but for the people who are under your care. And sometimes what the Lord may do to you, if you're unwilling to humble yourself and to pour out your heart, what do you think he may do? Someone tell me. He'll humble you. Yeah. Yeah. 
And um, I would pray that you pray for a heart that's tender and humble before the Lord. You remember Hezekiah 38, he, the word from the Lord comes that you're going to die. Put your house in order. And what does Hezekiah do? Two things. He prayed and he wept. Actually, it says he wept bitterly before the Lord. And I love it. It's such a tender text when you think about it, because then it says of the Lord, he says, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Like, it could have simply said, I've heard your prayer. And then he makes a statement, behold, I'm going to add 15 years to your life. But it's not just that. He says, I saw your tears. Even the Lord Jesus Christ learned obedience from the things in which he suffered. And it says, in loud crying and tears from the Lord Jesus Christ, heartfelt. Number six, leaders pray because it reflects selfless concern. We see this in Ephesians chapter one, just briefly. Ephesians chapter one, beginning in verse 17. Um, he prays. Well, verse 15, actually, verse 15 should start there. Having heard of your faith, your love for the saints, we don't cease giving thanks to you, but while making mention of you in my prayers, that God would do what? Give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation, that your heart, the eyes of your heart would be enlightened, you would understand your calling and your inheritance, you would understand the greatness of what, who God is. And then a similar prayer in chapter 3 as well. We have to be men of selfless concern. We stand in the gap for other people. We have to be that watchman. I, I love the words of John Calvin, and he said this, our prayer must not be self-centered. It must arise not only because we feel our own need as a burden we must lay upon God, but also because we are so bound up in love for our fellow men that we feel their need as acutely as our own. To make intercession for men is the most powerful and practical way in which we can express our love for them. So you say you're a lover of people? Pray for them. Intercede for them. Stand in the gap for them. And that's what the interceder does. He stands in the gap for people before the living God. We are, we are placing people in the hands of our sovereign master, because at times what we must realize as ministers, there are solutions that we absolutely do not have. We don't. Now, I have a fairly long history of ministry experience at this point. I've counseled many people over the years. I have a, a certification with a Christian organization. But in the end, friend, I have to take people before the living God and say, God, only you can heal their heart. I have to take people before the throne of grace and say, God, I cannot reconcile this situation. I have to take marriages there. I have to take people that are struggling in sin there. I have to take men who've gotten into perversions there. I have to take children there whose father is not at home, and that little kid is crying out, Jesus, will you bring my daddy back home? And if you don't have a concern for the lives of people, and if you cannot, in a selfless manner, even as Calvin so eloquently put it, if you cannot feel their need as acutely as your own, then why are you in the ministry? 
I don't know why. That's thoroughly biblical. It's not because Calvin said it. Um, Paul preceded Calvin when Paul said that we must weep with those who do what? Weep. So leaders are men of prayer, and leaders pray because it shows selfless concern for God's people. Remember that, God's people. Okay? Number seven, leaders pray because it prevents moral failure. It prevents moral failure. You say, on what basis do you say that? Look with me then at Colossians chapter 4. Colossians 4, beautifully stated here. Colossians 4, notice, he says in Colossians 4, 2, devote yourselves to prayer. And then he says, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Notice, keeping alert in it. And the implication of, of this statement is that keeping alert in it means that there's a moral readiness. And most likely, Paul is communicating this to say there's a moral readiness in light of Jesus Christ coming again. Make sure that you are living appropriately. There's a moral readiness also because you're engaged in spiritual war. Pay attention. And what is going to happen if you, when engaged in spiritual war, you're not paying attention to your adversary? Someone give me an answer. What do you think is going to happen? If you don't pay attention to your adversary, what is going to happen? No, I'm, I'm going to wait and listen to you. All these preachers in here, surely you have an answer. Ambush. Devour you. Take advantage of you. Sift you like wheat. Absolutely. Tempt you. Absolutely. And see, this is why we as leaders must be men of prayer. We must be. Moral failure, alertness in your own heart, alertness because you see the temptations facing your people. Um, it was, and I can't go through that context, I wish I could set it up for you, J.C. Rowell, what did he say? People are backsliders on their knees long before they backslide openly in the eyes of the world. Amen? So you see a man who has fallen morally, we all can make this conclusion that failure began when? Was it in that immediate moment? No, it was not. Was it when the woman showed up? No, it was not. Was it when the opportunity to pilfer from the church showed up? Was it when the opportunity to, to lie showed up? Absolutely not. That failure took place long before, and it took place most definitely because his lack of realizing his own inefficiency, his own sense of debauchery that's in his own heart, and then he did not do what? Pray. You will never find someone that can say, oh, I went from this to adultery while having the sweetest communion with the living God. It doesn't happen, does it? No, it does not. And this is what Rao means. One doesn't go from sweet communion with God, as one of our texts that we introduced you with, Psalm 27 and 4. You don't go from beholding the beauty of God to beholding the things of the world. Now, you will see both, understand the difference. You can see the beauty of God, but in around the corner, you can see the ugliness of the world, but the ugliness of the world won't be attractive to you. So you say it's important for a leader to pray. Of course it is, because then you can be alert. That's why 1 Corinthians 13, 
16, 13, be strong, be on the alert, act like what? Men. And it is 1 Peter 5 and 8. That's why you have to be on the alert because you have an adversary. It's a lion. He's out there roaming and he's prowling, seeking someone to do what? Devour. He wants to devour you. Brother, had a question. Um, actually, this quote right here, well, it's um, in his book, Do You Pray? I think it's page 36. So it, close to it, trust me. <laughs> don't, don't quote, we're talking about quotes, so don't quote me on that. I think it is. It's recorded now. So it, it, remember that, uh, that little addendum there? Uh, it's probably around 36. Yeah, in the little book, Do You Pray? Uh, upper right. There you go. All right. <laughs> so, number seven. I'm sorry, that is seven. Number eight. Leaders pray because it empowers evangelism. Go back with me to Colossians chapter four. It empowers evangelism. Because what does it say here in verses three and four? Praying at the same time for us as well, that God may open up a door for the word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been in prison, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Notice this beautifully stated, already said in the beginning of our time, Acts 6, 4, the ministry of prayer and the word. And he says here, notice the relationship between prayer and the word. Prayer and the word. So he says, pray for us as well. And what Paul is saying, yes, indeed, pray for the many needs that you may have, but also remember us. And when you remember us, pray that God would open a door so that we might preach. And then when we preach, it will be clear and then we'll be bold. So some considerations. So we should pray for evangelistic opportunities. That's Colossians 4. Colossians 4, 3 and 4. So pray for evangelistic opportunities that God would open doors. We see this metaphor in Scripture. Um, 1 Corinthians 16:9 says that, you know, God has opened a door, but he says there are many, what? Adversaries, spiritual warfare. Again, an open door for effective service, 2 Corinthians 2 and 12. Revelation 3 and 8, he says that Christ himself, speaking to the church at Philadelphia, I have opened a door which no one can shut. And it's beautiful. I wish I had time to develop the context of Acts 14. Acts 14, uh, Paul starts at Iconium. Um, as he is going to leave, the, uh, the people of God there, it says, they prayed for them and fasted and sent them on their way. And as he w- they were sent on their way, you saw them preaching the gospel, making disciples, and building up the church. But prayer is connected to it. So we should be prayer. Jonathan Edwards said this, there is no way that Christians in a private capacity can do so much to promote the work of God and advance the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Christ as by prayer. So Edward says, in an individual way, what can you do? Be a person of prayer to advance the kingdom of God. We should be that. We should also do this. He wants them to pray that they would have doctrinal clarity because he says in verse 4, that it may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. And this clarity if we were to consider verses 5 and 6 in Colossians, is directed towards unbelievers, those that are outside. 
So he says, make sure that you make the most of the opportunity. So that's the redemptive nature of it. Then he says as well, that your speech be seasoned with salt, that make sure that your speech is gracious speech, that edifies. Then he says, so that you will know how to speak to each person. So our speech should be particular. How do I talk to this person as opposed to the other? Their background is different. But you notice that it's connected all to prayer. So we have to be clear. MacArthur said it was in our chapel um, in January. He was speaking, and John MacArthur said, the worst sin for the minister is distorting the truth. And initially, people, wait a minute, isn't there something that's worse? But ultimately not. Because if you distort the truth, then how can we bring clarity to the gospel message? Because even a pastor that may fail uh, in in an adulterous relationship and it's scandalous, then in one sense we move on. But if you have distorted the truth, that is perpetuated. An example of it, this was probably about five years ago, I was actually in the library and I was doing some research and I forget who it was I was reading at the time, but the work was at least 100 years old. And I thought about John MacArthur, and I texted him. I said, you know, man of God, I often refer to him as such. Um, you know, maybe 50 years from now, 60 years from now, 100 years from now, someone's going to be reading what you have written. And I, sort of, I told him I sort of had sort of this pensive moment when I thought about that. And that's what's important, because he's gotten it right. And you need to get it right so so when someone listens to what you're saying or what you've written, you perpetuate truth as opposed to a lie. See, the one pastor could have lived a life that was morally upright, but if they've twisted the truth and then someone else is in a library reading their lies, which is worse? Think about it. So we have to be clear. Pray for evangelistic courage. He says, in the way that I ought to speak, obligation is necessary. So I need to speak God's word and be bold about it. And it's this idea of ought. There's a logical conclusion to me preaching the gospel. And now, because I am a true minister of the gospel, I'm obligated to preach it properly. It's interesting that in Ephesians 6.20, Paul doesn't his wording is a bit different. He, he says specifically that I would be bold and speak this way for boldness. Because if we are not bold, we may be clear, but if we're not bold, then we may never have an audience. Does that make sense? It's necessity. Jesus had to go through Samaria. There's a sense of obligation that's there. Let me close with some thoughts. Paul Paul's realization should be our own. Paul, this great man, we would say Paul was indeed a bold man. Would you say that? Was he a courageous man? But he was also a man that said, I need your prayers because I'm not sufficient. And we should be men who see things the same way. I need your prayers and I need to pray because I need to depend on the everlasting arms. When my day is, how am I going to get through it? I need to rest on the everlasting arms. When that situation in the church comes up and it seems to be beyond me and my training and my background and my experience, I need to rest in the everlasting arms. And here's the thing about it. 
I need to be a man of prayer first beginning because you are worthy of my praise and adoration and my thanksgiving. You're worthy to be lauded. You're worthy to be recognized. Is he not? Is God not worthy? That's why I should pray. I should pray because Jesus Christ has he's gone through the heavens. And when he went through the heavens, according to Hebrews, what he has now provided for us, now the opportunity to come before the throne of grace. And now, isn't it interesting that um, I noted recently that in Hebrews 4.16, it says that we can come. Actually, the Nazareth says with confidence. But actually, I, I was saying it when I was communicating it, and it came out, we can come boldly to the throne of grace. Because many, many years ago, I think I, it was stuck in my mind, either in the King James or the New King James, which is what they both say, boldly to the throne of grace. And I like that boldness. How can you come with boldness to the throne of grace because of the sufficient death, resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ? Amen? Then why would you not want to avail yourself of that? To be able to communicate with the living God. This is not just something you tell your grandkids and your kids. You can talk to God. I mean, if you have a right view of God, you just say to yourself, even if you've been in the ministry 20 years or 30 years or 40 years, and you've known the Lord 50 years, there should be almost, I believe, an increasing sense. This, how can it be that I can speak to the living God so easily? Well, then you have to answer your own question and say, because of Christ. Amen? Amen. And let me avail myself of it for my own soul and for the souls of those under my care. Father, we thank you for your goodness, grace, and mercy that you give us in Christ's name. Help us to pray. Amen.